tuned in to the Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Dr. Becky Morrow, a shelter veterinarian and professor who is very active in the animal rescue community. She founded Frankie's Friends Cat Rescue in 2010 after she cared for over 400 cats rescued from Tiger Ranch, a massive institutional hoarding facility. She's performed tens of thousands of spays and neuters and teaches high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter techniques to other veterinarians and veterinary students. Dr. Morrow is often called upon to speak on topics related to community cats and TNR and has worked with dozens of shelters and rescues in western Pennsylvania to bring the mobile surgical unit to underserved regions. In addition to being president and medical director at Frankie's Friends, Dr. Morrow is an assistant teaching professor at Penn State University and an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine's online shelter medicine program. Welcome to the show, Dr. Becky. Thank you so much for having me, Stacy. So first and foremost, how'd you become so passionate about cats? <laughs> I have always, it's so silly, but I mean, I've always loved cats and I've had cats growing up. And once I realized that they were really not getting the care they needed and they were treated as second-class citizens, I took a bigger focus on their care after veterinary school. Um, I didn't go to veterinary school saying, I'm going to take care of community cats. I didn't even know that was a thing, uh, as many of us don't, until that that door is opened up to us and we see these, these animals in need. So... Uh, once I saw that world, I knew I was I was in the right place, and this is what I need to be doing. I'm like you. I discovered community cats by just walking down the street and, you know, seeing cats living out of dumpsters and under porches and, and various other things and sort of understanding I'm walking down the street and I'm going, you know, really, this isn't just not right. It's just there are things we can do to prevent this all from happening. So, you know, how did you discover, though, that spay neuter was so critically important to help with our community cats? I mean, it's it's one thing to say, oh, I'll feed the cat. I'll put some shelter out there and take care of my first kitty I worried about was a cat named Watson. And, you know, he's this older, <laughs> gentlemanly like cat in Cambridge. And I would be I okay. put shelter out and put food out. But at that point in time, I mean, Watson may have been neutered. I didn't know at that time. But right. you know, where did you take it to that next step and right. understand how powerful spay neuter could be for community cats? It's it's really it's ironic because it's not until I stopped being a vet full time that I figured these things out. I ended up going into academia and I felt like I needed to use my brain differently. And I'm a, a very hyper uh, individual, as you probably can tell from all the things I do. And I, I found that we were looking, I met three other, two other professors that were very passionate about cats. And the one asked me about, what do you think about feral cats? And of course we used the word feral, which we don't love to use that now, but I said, I like them. What, what a weird question to ask your, 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 office mate the very first day. So it was meant to be. We paired up with a group that was doing high quality, high volume spay neuter to do service learning projects. And once I realized that was a possibility, I thought as a veterinarian of six years in private practice, there's no way you can do 
that many surgeries a day. This is impossible. There's no way you can do that well. So I was that doubting Thomas because that's how we're conditioned to be as veterinarians. We are unfortunately um, ra raised, I guess we kind of are raised. To, uh, it, it's like their parents um, were given the same biases that the traditional methodology and, and all these various biases. If you, you shouldn't have a pet, if you can't afford a pet, all of these things, this is how we're, we're taught. And it's completely against what I believe now, now that I'm open to this world. And, um, you know, once I saw what you can do for the community cats, I ended up taking a, a position in the organization. I became president and I started to try to change how they were doing things, not um, in the surgical sense and that so much, but they were trying to be very fair, so to speak, and give each uh, person two spots. And I said, listen, yeah. we're just spinning our wheels here. If we do this, we need to be targeted. So it, it just isn't logical. I mean, you, they can reproduce faster than you can span neuter them if you're doing two here, two there, two here. So it took a lot to try to get them to come around, which is unfortunate because these are the folks that are doing this well, but they still didn't understand that the number game. I mean, we have to do targeted or we're not going to get ahead of the population. Right. And I think that the one thing that I was really blessed and lucky with was starting out with the Newburyport project, which was just one concerted area. The group, when they first started, which was before my time, two years before I joined the group, they were going to call themselves the Newburyport Cat Society. And they decided to be Merrimack River to be a little bit more regional because they were like, well, what happens if we get the Newburyport situation under control, which at that time was overwhelming, that specific area of Newburyport. Right. But it was, in essence, enough of a targeted area for them to be very successful very quickly with regards to a targeted TNR project. And uh -huh. the ultimate goal was to get to 100% sterilization. And I know there's been a lot of research. Is it 80% enough? Is 73% enough? Is 92% enough? What is enough? Right. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, if we do strive for 100%, then we're going to be ahead of the game. Absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to see results. We will see change in that community. Absolutely. And we did a mathematical modeling um, with the math department. That's not my forte. That's one thing I am definitely going to stay away from. But we, we got 90% was ours. So it's, it's, it's definitely 80, 90, somewhere in there is probably pretty accurate based on our models. But absolutely, that was, that was amazing what they did. And to be in that and to, to learn from them, that's great. You know, a lot of us had to figure it out as we go because there was no, there were no resources available. So what you're doing is amazing because if we can stop recreating the wheel, that's why we're trying to teach people things too. Right. Because that saves us from, uh, you know, wasting time. And it does create a, a core that you can build out from. And you do have other pods in, in Massachusetts. We would have these other blocks where we would work on a targeted project basis. But then there is connectivity and success uh, at the lower population areas. So you're in western Pennsylvania. So there's there are urban areas and then there are rural areas. And how do you address the cat situation, cat population numbers? How do you approach it differently, rural versus urban, suburban? And that's a great question. I think that it's really we're we're looking for people who are reaching out for help. At this point in the game, I don't think anybody has enough resources to go and try to to say, we need to do this in this area and people are fighting against you. I mean, we just don't have the resources to do that. Uh, so what we try to do is accommodate folks that are reaching out for help. And it seems that most of the time they are in more rural areas. The 
various campgrounds and different neighborhoods and, and those types of things. Um, sometimes, you know, barns, of course, and, and those type of rural situations. We have had some, when I was a professor down in, in Pittsburgh, I had some students telling me about the south side slopes of Pittsburgh. And so that was pretty urban, obviously, mm-hmm. um, that there are cats there. So of course they exist everywhere. We did a project there as well, but it seems that we just get more folks that are asking for help from the the rural areas. Yeah, I think that they may not be statistically impactful with regards to our intake facilities, those intake numbers that we have always depended on for our measurables, which I tend to believe there's different reporting measures for success, you know, out in the community. I think the rural world, you may not have a shelter in that area, so you may not have that kind of metric to look at. But yet that doesn't mean that there aren't cats that need that type of assistance out there. Right. Tell me a little bit about your program. You, you say it's mobile. So we ended up, uh, when I started our rescue, I literally bought a box trailer from Craigslist that hauled Harley Davidson motorcycles. The man had um, made it into a kind of toy hauler, as they call them. And it had running water, it had cabinets, it had uh, some other things. And I made it into a mobile surgery unit. It was in my backyard. So we were, there's as grassroots as you can get uh, with a credit card for my husband because I was not in the best financial shape at the time because I spent a lot of money on those 400 cats that needed help. Even though um, there was some backing, it's when you're there working with them day to day, you tend to to not think about the finances and just help them. So anyway, uh, that was how we started the mobile. It was just out of necessity. It was the way that I could do it affordably. And we started to take it out to places that needed help. Um, We went to a person's house. So actually she hosted the clinics at her house initially, the one person. Um, The other places usually are more like fire stations that have the accommodation for tables and such. And we put all our cats in there. So as we grew, we started to meet other members of the community, other rescue groups. They were interested in bringing these services to their communities. Mm -hmm. So we essentially decided 60 mile radius is about as far as we would be able to go to do a good job because it, you know, more than an hour and 15 minute drive each way is going to be putting a a hindrance on us. So we uh, build up where I was going out every Saturday and Sunday. It was uh, doing 50 to 60 cats each day with my my two technicians or sometimes a veterinary student, sometimes a pre-vet student. We'd have three of us. We were just doing the medical. Community partners were doing the intake, the paperwork, the rabies certificates, all of that, discharging the patients. Mm-hmm. We had a really good rapport with our community partners. So we were doing basically... Every, yeah, about 100 surgeries a week and out in the community. In addition to, we have a, what is it, a uh, stationary, there you go, that's the word, stationary clinic <laughs> um, here in New Kensington, which uh, is a good good place for people to come um, during the weekdays. So did you go mobile first? Oh, yes. No, mobile first because it was just money. I bought that for $4,600 on Craigslist and I drove it back myself from Cleveland, which was exciting. (laughs) I didn't even take a cat with me. Usually I take my little Emmy. She likes to go for road trips. Yes, I'm that person too. (laughs) And she wears a denim jacket with a cat on it. So (laughs) yes, of course she does. Um, But yeah, it's a matter of starting from the ground up and not having the resources, but still getting it done. And eventually then I found a building because we found the need for helping other cats in the community that 
when you go out to these places, they need spay neuter services. Yes, but you're going to find injured cats. You're going to find sick cats. And to me, it's never an option to euthanize if I can do something to help that animal. So I start putting him in my bathroom and I start, I'm like, oh my goodness, we need a building. So (laughs) we didn't want to become a shelter because that takes away from our purpose, but we're also human and we also have compassion and we need to help these animals. So what we are at this point is, is a bit of a hybrid. We are spay neuter facility, but we have a medical rescue is what we call ourselves. So we take in cats from cruelty cases. We take in cats from the community that need rehabilitation, specialized surgeries, other things. That's how we have done it. So now we've got two buildings. We're leasing one and we're, we're still paying on the other, but we have two buildings and we're building up a brand new mobile at this point from the ground up. We had mobile 2.0. It served us well, but we're not talking about these $250,000 trucks. We're talking about, this was $12,000, my last mobile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it, there's wear and tear. And it was, rather than put the money into rehabilitating it for this purpose, it was more fiscally responsible to get a new one. And then I'm going to repurpose this for our CSI <laughs> purposes when we go out to cruelty cases. Excellent. Very, very interesting. Got so much packaged in here. A lot has happened, obviously, in the last two to three years with regards to the vet shortage, spay-neuter, loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were doing so well, I thought. Sure. Ten years ago, seven years ago, we were doing so well. Spay-neuter, we were really getting there. And now, I-, I know in Massachusetts, we were like from 2008 on, we spay-neutered every cat that had four paws on the ground. Mm-hmm. Now we're dealing with them with their dental issues and their, you know, renal issues and all their other stuff. So that's where that next sort of step of thinking about how do we provide care for our cats in the community. That's in Massachusetts, where I think we worked really hard many years ago and earlier than 2008 to really spay neuter as much as we could. Other parts of the country were slower to move into that spay neuter environment. Then COVID hits, we get set back even more with regards to spay neuter. Right. We're now behind the eight ball. Yep. You've created some spay neuter opportunities from minimal dollars. We're hearing from a lot of grassroots TNR organizations because they can't get appointments. They're trying to create programs on their own. Right. Back to basics. We're doing our Sunday spay neuter clinics that are in private practice clinics bringing the Tupperware. We're carrying the Tupperware again. We're bringing the Tupperware back in. I remember those days. And resetting everything up. We're back to doing all of that again, just to help create more capacity. But I know you have some thoughts on this issue. How can we get more spay neuter, you know, going across the country again? Right. It comes down to what I said. I was the Downing Thomas. I didn't know this was a thing. (laughs) And I think a lot of veterinarians just don't know it's a thing. I mean, we're we're in our infancy in shelter medicine as, as a specialty. And most of these veterinary students don't get that point of view. And if they do, it's for maybe two weeks and they get a very minimal uh, exposure to this world. So what we're trying to do and what we realized is that, you know, we can't do all of this ourselves. And it's funny because a lot of times we do think that way, even though it's an astronomical problem. We just like, yep, let's just keep working. We can do this. And it's a great method to burn yourself out. (laughs) So I didn't get to that point, but I got to the point where I finally was like, okay, there is another way we need to do something differently because we're not making a big enough dent. I started to, well, I actually went to teach at a veterinary school and I was teaching high volume spay neuter techniques, but it was a very bad environment. It was not conducive to learning and it was very bad for my mental health. (laughs) So I had to leave that uh, very quickly. And I thought, well, I'm just going to do it here. We build everything from the ground up anyway. 
let's do it here. And my team is amazing and backed me and said, yep, we're going to do it. So just um, a year ago, uh, we set up another facility. We have four surgery tables now. We have cameras so we can watch surgeries from each other. We have enough space to accommodate other veterinarians. And what we need to do is teach others what we do. Excellent. And I really feel passionate about this. Private practice vets, they want to help. I think they just don't know this is a problem or know how to help. Mm -hmm. This is not a set of skills that you come out of vet school with at all. We want to get people not just competent, but confident. The confident that they can have a clinic on Sundays and hey, let's do community casts. I have the ability to do this. So we started doing these weekend training sessions that were six hours didactic. So they're classroom based and then hands-on where they're tying with models and learning the techniques. And then the next day we did a full cat clinic. I brought 50 cats in. (laughs) They saw what each station and and the efficiency and how this is good medicine. (laughs) You know, this is really good for the animals. Smaller incisions are better for them. Shorter surgery time is better. And all of these traditional methods that were taught in vet school that we are to believe are the gold standard are really not the best way to do things for these these animals. I think, you know, education is going to be a big part of it. And I'm very passionate about education and passionate about this world and spaying and neutering and cats. So it fits really well for us to do that. Yeah, I've gotten involved in a private practice clinic, the Community Cat Clinic, which opened down in Atlanta. It's trying to incorporate some of the components of bringing community cats into a private practice with an understanding that that's part of the role we play. We're like the country doctor, really, Mm -hmm. for all of the cats in the community, regardless of whether they're a purebred Persian or they are a community cat. Those services are provided under the same roof. But I've had some pushback with people saying, well, you know, why do you want to teach these techniques to private practice veterinarians when they're just using it for like the high dollar paying public? Uh Um, I'll share my thoughts on that, which is I think anything that helps save time, speeds up the process where it's a best practice. It's not a high volume, low quality. It's a best practice. Exactly. If that can save that clinic some time then we're all overworked, we are all overstressed, and either that gives you enough time to be able to get out of work on time, uh-huh. it gives you enough time to be able to you know, throw a couple of extra surgeries in during the course of the week. That's my thought, is that it doesn't matter at this point about the financials around it, who's benefiting from these skills. Right. These are skills that everybody should have, and I'm not sure if that's where you are too, Dr. Becky. No, I absolutely agree. This is better for the animals. I care about all the animals. And these are techniques that improve the recovery times for the animals. They do better. They're very quick to recover. So absolutely, I agree with you that if we teach the private practice veterinarians these techniques, I think they're going to find their schedules do open up more and they're going to be more available to help the community cats. (laughs) And it's not sometimes if they don't want to do these things, they are maybe overworked or burned out. And this will help them to help us as well. Do you need expert help taming feral kittens for adoption? Watch the Taming Feral Kittens and Cats full-length workshop video now available for free on the Urban Cat League YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com and search Urban Cat League to see all of their videos to benefit community cats. Are you ready to take your learning to the next level? Get your hands on the only all-access pass to all things community cats. 
the Community Cats Pass with Community Cats Podcast. This one-time purchase will ensure you're registered for all of our full 2024 calendar. That's all events, webinars, and workshops from the online cat conference to the online kitten conference from TNR to surrender prevention certification workshops. Your 2024 Community Cats Pass will ensure you never miss a minute of cat-saving content. Turn your passion for cats into action all year long. Grab your pass today at communitycatspodcast.com. In animal welfare, there's always someone to talk with and learn from. Check in with hundreds of animal welfare colleagues every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern to have your chance at $5,000 just for attending. These 50-minute calls are a collaborative space to share exciting new programs and research, discuss uncomfortable topics, connect with peers in the industry, and more, all while sharing a common goal of preserving the human-animal bond. Go to forum.maddiesfund.org to register now. You can also watch on demand if you can't make it live. Some of the things that I've also heard about veterinarians, you know, is sometimes that they end up doing things that aren't necessarily in their, I don't know, in their realm of responsibility. So, right. you know, technicians, they're veterinary technicians. We do have a shortage with technicians. Technicians want more responsibility. They want higher pay with additional responsibilities. And there may be some responsibilities that a technician could do, but veterinarians still hold on to those tasks. Do you see that happening? That's absolutely correct. Absolutely. It's a traditional way of doing things as well. It's very unfortunate. And that's it's a lack of efficiency. And you're using your team properly. And that's part of what we're training when these folks come in is that these technicians are more than effective at doing these these tasks. I mean, they're amazing. Give them a chance to do all of the things that aren't surgery, that are, are within our practice laws, of course. They are able to anesthetize the animals. They are able to prep them. They are able to do post-op. They are able to do a lot of things. There's no reason that we should be doing those things as veterinarians. And that's exactly why I think there's not necessarily a shortage of veterinarians. There's a shortage based on the way we run our practices currently. Right. And there's a shortage of technicians based on how we do things currently. But if we all did look at this business model, for lack of a better word, yeah, you need more technicians. There's three technicians to one veterinarian typically is an ideal situation. In surgery, traditionally, one tech, one vet. So the vet's doing all of these things that are not necessarily, you know, under their realm of responsibilities. They're doing technician jobs, which it's certainly not beneath us. So I don't mind doing that, but you're not using your team effectively. We're all trying to recruit veterinarians and technicians for our clinics. I think something like a third of high volume spay neuter clinics have either shut down or have lost staff since COVID. Do you have any tips for how to hire or how to recruit staff? That's a great question, too. And I don't know that I have any tips, but um, um, if you run a, a training program, you get to meet a lot of people and you could try to snag them. <laughs> now, it, I think that one of the things, though, that I did find is if we talk more and if we meet each other and we're not our islands of veterinary clinics, 
maybe we could help each other out. And maybe, I mean, it's in this world, we can do it because it's not business. It's not a competition. It's not, we're just trying to help the community cats. Maybe this is the way that we kind of get together and clinics help and come together to do these community cat days or something where historically, when my boss had his practice back in the day, they used to rotate emergency coverage for each other. Yep. There were a lot more situations where the clinics and the, the doctors, the vets would be collaborating. And it's unfortunate that this world today is you don't even necessarily know the person down the street. So, you know, maybe that's the thing where we we start to communicate more and having these opportunities of learning together. I do have, you know, more people that are interacting. I have the shelter veterinarians talking to private practice veterinarians, and it's, it's a great thing. If they have a question, so we're always here. And if I'm not here, we have a group that we can answer each other questions. And building those little communities, I think, is it's hard to do, but it's going to be so worthwhile and we're going to be able to help a lot more animals. What's life like for community cats in the area that you are? How impactful has your program been in that region? And what do you see down the road for community cats? Well, I mean, I'm very hopeful. I think that, you know, more people with the awareness and with the tools that they can take care of these cats better and knowing, you know, what they need and making their lives better. You know, I really feel feel that we are we are making progress in a lot of it. We did get the setback with COVID, but a lot of it is that there are more people that are aware and there are more people that will jump in and help. And we just need to really help each other out and not have to, again, recreate the wheel. Let's share what we know. Let's share our knowledge, share our resources, and really just try to come together as a community of people to help our community of cats. And I'm going to put my pitch in here for United Spay Alliance, which is also trying to create labs all across the country, one in every state, because there are licensing challenges. Like, so say you've got somebody in the next state over that wants to come and do training, depending on the state and the various rules. Right. There are some reciprocity issues. So you just have to be really careful with that. Right. I think inside the state, there are some really golden opportunities and it is beneficial to know your neighbor down the street. Yeah, Absolutely. We're very lucky with our laws. We actually do have the ability to have people come in and train if they have a license in another state within the United States. We're able to have them participate. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. So if folks are interested in finding out more about this training opportunity, more about your organization and what you do, how would they find you? They can go to www.frankies-friends.org and you can find everything there from the training facility and the sessions that we're running to all kinds of videos and other things that they can look at. And if anybody is interested in any of the training resources, I'm very happy to share that. We just want more people to learn how to do things and learn from us. We learn from them. If we learn from each other and we find the best way to help these animals, I think, you know, everybody wins. It's a great, great uh, collaboration and, and we can do a whole lot more together. Excellent. Dr. Becky, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? No, I'm very, very pleased uh, to be here and really happy to to spread the good word, as we like to say, <laughs> with other believers. <laughs> and, and thank you for this opportunity, Stacey. Excellent. Dr. Becky, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show, and I hope we'll have you on the show in the future. Oh, happy to be here anytime. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. 
You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Wow.